Tonight, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. I'll tell you what we're going to see. We're going to see the Lord's miraculous hand to protect and deliver his people. And then the boldness of the apostles to go out and to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, the son of God, came. He died upon a cross in our place and for our sins. And when we put our faith in him and in the power of his resurrection, the reality that he rose again three days later, and that when we believe that, we receive eternal life. See, that's in essence, that is the gospel message. And see, the apostles were out preaching that message and they were doing so with such veracity and such boldness that people took note not only of the great message that they carried out in the name of Jesus, but also the great power that came through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus promised his disciples in Acts 1 verse 8. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And so we saw that happen as the apostles and the church began to go out in Acts 2 and Acts 3. When the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts 2, they preached the gospel. And then in Acts 4, if you remember, Peter and John were called in before the Sanhedrin. They were told by those Jewish leaders, that council, the Supreme Court of sorts. They said, you guys can't do this anymore. And at the end of the day, we know it was because they were jealous and they hated the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were proud. They wanted to keep their power, their prestige, their positions. And in the same way that they tried to silence the voice of Jesus Christ by crucifying him, condemning him to death, they have tried to do the same and are working towards doing the same towards the apostles. And see, at the end of the last study in Acts, at Acts 5, 16, uh, basically what we had was the apostles going out and doing miraculous works in the name of Jesus. People were being healed. They even said that Peter's shadow falling upon people was healing them of sicknesses. They were casting out demons. They were doing all these incredible things, but they were connecting it to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that everyone needs to repent from sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So keep that in mind. That's the context of what we're coming into tonight. We're going to see three things tonight. We're going to see indignation, examination, and liberation. That's how I would sum up the rest of the chapter, verse 5, chapter 5, 17 through 42. And so tonight, right here, what we're going to begin with is verse 17 through 18. So if you have your Bible, open up to Acts 5, 17. And it says, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So right off the bat, we have the religious leaders who I already mentioned. They are filled with indignation. In other words, they have absolute hatred for the things of Jesus. We're told that they've been going and preaching the word. They've been preaching and doing things in the name of Jesus. And remember, they were forbid to do so by this council of leaders uh, back in Acts 4.18. But in verse 17, we're told that the high priest, who is Caiaphas, the same high priest, who led the council to condemn Jesus Christ and all the Sadducees with them. It says they were filled with indignation. Again, I'm going to use that word sometimes. And, and here's the deal. The word indignation in the Greek, it's connected to zeal and to jealousy. And see, these religious leaders, they were seeing multitudes 
of just people flocking to the church, right? And and embracing it, being healed in Jesus' name. And it spawned just envious rage in those religious leaders. You see, they were threatened by the works of the church, of the apostles, all done through the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were offended by the words that they taught. So they remember, they were talking about Sadducees here, it says, right? In verse 17. Um, Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in like heavenly things. They didn't believe in, in the resurrection. And so when they're preaching about a resurrected Jesus and then saying that there is eternal life, that after you die, there is a resurrection and you're going to have to stand before God for it. And they're proving this with miracles. That would be pretty frustrating to the Sadducees theology. It reminds us again, that we shouldn't try to adjust God to fit our theology, we adjust our theology based on who God is. And scripture tells us who God is. There is an afterlife. And everyone goes somewhere for eternity. Jesus said in Matthew 20, uh, 25, 41 and 25, 46, that there is a real true hell that was created for the devil and his angels. But those that reject Jesus Christ, that's where they are sent to. There's two options. And the only way to inherit eternal life is through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he said that he is, that, that he's the door, he's the gate, he is the, the, the living, the, he gives the living water, he is the life. All of that, we must, we must believe in Jesus Christ. And so as they're preaching this, you see these same religious leaders are the ones that condemned Jesus, Right? So now they're hearing that, that these men are out here preaching that same message. Imagine how frustrated they would be. That name that they tried to shut down and put away is now being exalted. And all these miracles are being done in his name. People are putting their faith in his name. And see, just as with Jesus, here the leaders could not deny the apostles. The things they said, the things they did, it was so clearly powerful. They couldn't resist their words. They couldn't reject the miracles to the point of putting them away. So instead of joining them, they attempt to shut their mouths. They say, we're going to stop these guys. And in this case, they arrested all of the apostles and put them in a public prison so that they could await for a trial before the Sanhedrin. So you have to remember, these guys are probably thinking, man, this is, this is gnarly, right? We're going into jail for preaching the gospel here. But remember, Jesus promised that these kind of things would happen when his disciples and apostles stand upon his word and preach the gospel. In Luke 21, 12 to 13, Jesus said, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. And see, if you're going to be a witness, you got to have a testimony. And see, what I see in this idea is that when we're obedient, obedience brings opposition. But opposition creates occasion to preach the gospel. Amen? Without opposition, man, no one's going to challenge us. No one's going to ask or see that there's something else to live for, that there's something rivaling their very life. And it's the truth of Jesus Christ. And that gives us an occasion to preach it. Look at what happens in verses 19 through 20. It says, but at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
And see, I think this is so crazy, right? Because here are the apostles being held in this prison. Again, they're probably sitting there thinking, man, this is, this is heavy, right? Let me be clear. No one likes to go through trials in the sense of like, all right, cool. We're arrested, man. We're going to sit in prison tonight and probably face the people that condemned our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to death. And they're probably going to kill us too. Yeah, high five, right? It is a, a heavy scenario for these guys. They're sitting in this, in this scene. They're probably playing through all the fearful outcomes that could happen to them in the morning. When they go and stand before that Sanhedrin and they're looking around, they're probably thinking, man, there's no way out of here. The doors are locked. The guards are in place. There's just no hope, right? But God. <laughs> See, it says that God sent an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, just an angel of the Lord to come and open the prison doors at night. You might say, well, how or why does God do this? Well, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that angels are God's ministers. Basically, they, that he sends them out. They're ministering spirits to do whatever he sees fit to minister to his people and to, to, to minister unto his cause, if you will. And see, in this case, we're also told in Hebrews 13 that you may entertain angels not even know it. So who knows if they knew this was an angel in the moment, but they knew this much. They had to know it was the Lord. When those doors were open and then they're being let out, to where no one is even realizing that they're going past the enemy, right? Right through the doors and leading them out to freedom. It just reminds me with all these guards in place, it reminds me of Psalm 127.1. It says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. <laughs> See, God is going to have his way. His, his will will come to fruition. You could put as many guards on the other side, as many things to try to prevent God from doing his will, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. God is going to have his way. And see, in this case, all those threatening guards were absolutely useless against the omnipotent God of the apostles. And in verse 20, did you note what it says here? It says, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Do <laughs> you see what happens here? Yes, the apostles were given freedom from the place that they were in, uh, in, enslaved or they were, they were in bondage, right, in, in jail. In this case, they were given freedom, but what they were also given was the command to use that freedom. And there was a reason for their miraculous escape. It was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, you and I have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light that we would proclaim his praises. And see, so you might say, well, James, that's kind of weird. What do you mean they preached the gospel? Right here, it says that they were to go tell everyone the words of this life. And see, that's just odd phrasing for the gospel. We don't see this phrase really anywhere else in this kind of context throughout scripture. But if the Lord is sending an angel to get them out and send them to the temple, what else would God have them preach? An inspirational message or uh, maybe just to tell the people they're doing just fine. They just need a nice diet change or they need to pick new politicians or something. Of course not. God is calling them to get back out there to preach the gospel. And I think about that phrasing. Tell them the things about this life or of this life. I think of like second, I think it's second Corinthians 5, uh, 17 or 521. Forgive me. It's one of those two verses where it says, uh, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And it speaks to that new life, right? that new creation. He says, go tell people about this life. This is different than the life they're living. It reminds me 
of 1 John 5, 11 through 12. It says, and this is the testimony, speaking of what we're to, to tell people, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. See, that's the life they're supposed to be talking about, the life that is found in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And so, again, we've talked about this many times now. A miracle alone is not enough to bring faith, right? I hope we understand that, that if you hear of, of some miraculous thing, you could chalk that up to anything. But what we needed was a miracle, like they're freeing out of a out of a jail with see, quite obviously miraculous, right? That an angel would come and lock the doors and the guards somehow don't even know they're out there. But now they have to be able to use this freedom to preach the gospel. And see, we want to make sure that there's not just some random miracle floating around. No one knows how to connect this. Our life, our salvation is miraculous. <laughs> we have to be able to connect it with Jesus Christ. And again, we are to use our freedom. Just like the apostles were set free, they were also told, hey, now go do something for the Lord. We're to use our freedom to become bond servants, willing servants of God, as 1 Peter 2.16 talks about. But as we see here, the apostles, they're going to boldly preach in the temple. Look at verse 21 through 25. It says, And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So in verse 21, again, what we see here is that they obey the command of the Lord. They use their freedom the way they should. And so what they do here is they boldly return to the temple of all places, right? This is the place they keep getting arrested and keep finding trouble for themselves. But they go there and it says first thing in the morning they went there to teach the people. And see, the, the day in this time can, was considered to begin at 6 a.m. That's when you would have the hour of prayer and the hour of sacrifice at the temple, uh, the first one. And so uh, the first hour, I should say. And so they would go there and they would proselyze. So when people came in to the hour of sacrifice, there's the apostles telling them, hey, the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ, he died for you. As Hebrews 10.10 says, right? And then they would be there and, and they would be telling people and showing people the miraculous works that they were doing in the name of Jesus proved that the gospel was true. And the gospel revealed why the miracles were happening, or happening so that people could put their trust in Jesus Christ. And so here they are trying to get the people that are seeking God to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And see, as, just as the Jewish religious day started at 6 a.m., so did the Jewish judicial day. So now we have the Sanhedrin and the council all coming together, it said, right? And they, they got together um, so that they could call these guys in, right? Um, they, the high priest and those, they got the whole council and they sent to the prison to have the guys come over for the hearing. <laughs> 
So imagine the Sanhedrin. They get together. They have all their flowing robes on, their curls, their hats, their all their phylacteries, and all the things that they need to look big and, and, and righteous and religious. But also, they're gathering. All 71 of them are going to get together and sit in that semicircle for this hearing. And it's going to be quite intimidating to walk into all of these men. Imagine the 12 apostles here are going to come in to 71 enemy men, so to speak. And they're going to sit there and probably in that, in that, that intense intimidation after a night spent in jail, the Sanhedrin's going to think, man, we got them. These guys are going to come in and they're going to want to quit. But there's one small problem, right? Verse 22 and 23, it states that the officers sent to gather the apostles, he didn't find them there. They weren't inside the jail cell. The, the, these guards, they come and they simply state, indeed, we found the prison shut securely. And the guards were standing outside uh, before the doors. Uh, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this is just a, a, an awesome story to me. I think it's so much fun. Uh, I think the idea, it's just totally classic. The prison doors are locked shut. They're still there. They didn't blow the doors off or anything. The doors are there. The guards are still positioned outside. They've, they've been there. But they're guarding nobody. There's no one inside the jail. Like, this is so hilarious to me. They're all set up and they're all with their swords and their shields and their thick, heavy bars to keep people in. There's no one in there. And see, it's like, how did you guys not notice this? Man, your guards are weak. Your system is broken. And so in verse 24, I mean, this just cracks me up, right? You can imagine the Sanhedrin. They're probably just standing here and they're thinking like, like they're wondering what the outcome could be, it says. They're probably just perplexed. They're all ready for this trial. They think that they're like, they're, they're in favor here, right? And they're like, oh man, what, what is happening? What is going on here, right? They're supposed to be all fancy and, 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 and strong and they're just completely confused. And then in verse 25, someone runs in and they say, look, the men whom you put out into prison are standing out, out in the temple and they're teaching the people. <laughs> These dudes that got arrested for preaching at the temple gone broke out and are back at the temple preaching and teaching to people. I mean, if that's not stubborn boldness for Jesus's sake, man, I don't know what is. They said, yeah, the same place you keep arresting us for teaching people, that's where we're at. I just think that's incredible, right? So you see all this indignation. And then we're going to see there's going to be an examination beginning in verse 26. Let's start here at 26. It says, then the captain went with the officers and brought them, the apostles, without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have fallen, I'm sorry, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So what we see here, the apostles are being led away for an examination for a trial. But did you notice in verse 26, that typical fear of man under which the whole religious council and institution of that time always operated? You see, what we, what, what's happening here is they didn't want to violently take away or arrest the apostles because they feared that the people revered the apostles and they would stone the religious leaders or they would at least uproar, right? There'd be a riot. And so what this shows us is that these guys were more concerned about the opinions of man than they were of the opinion of God. See, they desire to save face before the people 
while at the same time they're desiring to 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 capture, arrest, and kill the apostles that God has just miraculously freed from their possession. I mean, think about this. How do you explain these guys getting out of jail? It must have been God, man. It was a miracle. They're like, forget that. We're going to get these guys and we're going to kill them. And so here the, here's this scene. You have the lofty religious leaders and then the lowly apostles. Remember, we're talking about fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, right? We got this, these, this juxtaposition that's happening. And the lowly apostles here, they're not the ones that are afraid. I think it's just religious leaders. They're like, man, we're afraid of the people, man. They might stone us. Let's just be real nice here. Let's be real gentle. They're on, they're on that, like, they're on that, that, that defensive game of like, man, hopefully no one's gonna like like hurt us, right? The apostles are just like, man, whatever. We're not, we're not afraid. They're just boldly unafraid. And I'll tell you why that is, because God had already delivered them previously and they knew that he was in control like they were sitting in jail they didn't appeal to man to save them they didn't appeal for man's pity or protection even in the midst of the crowd and say hey guys don't let them take us hurry stone these guys or something they said no you know what we serve the lord god of hosts that is in control of all of the the angel armies that can unlock the gates of a prison and get us out with no one noticing he says whatever he has the apostles would say in his will, man, it's best for his glory. Reminds me of Job 42.2. It says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours, Lord, can be withheld from you. So in the good, in the bad, in the blessed, and in the wicked, we can trust that the Lord God is sovereign. That should give us a boldness to not be afraid anymore of the things that this world tries to throw at us. And so in verse 27, the apostles, they were brought before that same council. I can't stress this enough. The same council that Peter and John stood before in Acts 4, 5 through 22, that when they told them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. But remember, this is the same council that condemned Jesus to death. So we know these guys are just absolutely stubborn about their hatred of Jesus and anything connected with him. The, their abhorrence of the gospel is very clear. It ran rampant. And we see that in verse 28. They said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and tend to bring this man's blood on us. So first of all, I want to note something here. These proud, hate-filled leaders were frustrated and angry that Peter and John did not honor their previous uh, command not to go and teach in Jesus' name. And see, it's interesting here. They can't even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. Did you catch that? Again, in verse 28, they said, you can't teach in this name and you bring this man's blood upon us. They don't even want to say that powerful name of Jesus, the kind of conviction that name carries, right? There's power in it. And of course, Peter and John immediately responded back in Acts 4, 19 through 20, when they were told not to preach the first time, they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So the apostles made it clear from the get-go that, man, we are not bowing to the unrighteous requests of evil men because they knew that they were called by God to be witnesses. They had received the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, as Acts 1.8 said. Secondly here, I have to note that 
They were just absolutely offended that the apostles kept connecting Jesus's crucifixion, his death, back to them. See, it's not because they were sorry for what they did. And they're like, man, stop talking about that. It makes me feel bad, right? No, it was because they, they knew that the people had began to revere Jesus and his apostles as they began to accept the gospel. And they wanted to keep favor with the people. They're like, dude, don't tell them that we killed them. See, let's be clear. The Sanhedrin knew that they had condemned Jesus. They knew that. They weren't dumb. They could remember this. It was just some, what, 50, 60 days prior. But they still wanted to look holy before a man who they so greatly feared the opinions of, right? And see, they diligently sought to maintain that upright public image all the time. But privately and spiritually, they were bankrupt. They were distant from God. Remember what Jesus said about the religious leaders back in Matthew 23, 27 through 28. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside it's full of dead bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And see, I think it's interesting. It's been pointed out that the reason that the apostles continued to connect Jesus' death to the Sanhedrin, as they've so complained here, it wasn't to condemn them in it. It was so that they could lead them to understanding their need for the gospel. They needed forgiveness because they sent Jesus to the cross, right? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, rejecting Jesus Christ, condemning Jesus Christ, the wages of that sin is death. But the free gift of God, free to us, but it costs Jesus everything, right? The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so that route is the route that Peter is going to take in addressing and responding to the Sanhedrin. He says, yeah, you know what? We do pin it on you. <laughs> but watch what he does here, okay? Take a look at verse 29 through 32, Peter's response. It says, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So I love this because it's great boldness that Peter is is filled with as he preaches the gospel to this Sanhedrin. Again, the same guys that condemned Jesus Christ, right? So first of all, he adamantly reiterates the fact that, yes, we are going to be committed to God over you. <laughs> Sorry about that, but this is what we're called to do. We are always going to obey God rather than man. That should be what we desire. Again, I said we always do that. Obviously, we fall short, but that should be our intention is to obey God rather than men. See, the apostles weren't about to abandon their calling to be witnesses because of the evil requests of wicked men. I have to pause for a second and just talk about this. Romans 13, right, 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, that call us to be subject to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. But this right here, when man says, stop preaching and talking about Jesus, stop serving Jesus, stop living for him, that is precisely where the line is drawn in regards to submitting to authorities and governing powers. We only submit to man until it breaks our allegiance to the Lord. So good, be an honorable member of society. But the minute they tell you, you got to choose this or Jesus, 
you've got to stop talking about Jesus. You've got to stop gathering in the name of Jesus. You've got to stop doing things in the name of Jesus. No, that's the line, man. See, 1 Peter 2.17, it says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. But all of that is rooted in holy reverence and submission to King Jesus. We are not to put any other king over our King Jesus. I can honor all people, love the brotherhood, and fear God, and honor the king. Speaking as like a president or a governor or whatever you want to have. I can honor them by respecting the office. But the minute they ask me not to surrender to King Jesus, that's the line. And so Peter knew that. But also in verse 30 to 32, Peter charges these guys. He doesn't go back down and go, man, that was a rough night in jail. And it's, yeah, we got out, but maybe God just wants to spare us. We better not like put force the issue with these guys. No, he goes head on. He charges the religious leaders with the fact that they sent Jesus. Did you see his words here in verse 30? The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. That is doubling down, right? He says, guys, your sin is, of, is one that was rejecting of Jesus Christ. That is your sin. You killed him. But the reason he brings that up is so that he can offer, as it says here in verse 31, right? That Jesus can give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins and can give the Holy Spirit to those who are obedient. Man, this is incredible because what's happening here is they're telling these guys, yes, you killed Jesus. But God still desires that you would repent and obey and receive forgiveness for that prior sin, for that previous rejection of Jesus, and that you would be blessed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about how wild this is, what Peter is offering these guys, the very guys that condemn Jesus Christ, right? Peter's telling those men, the same God who rose Jesus from the dead because you killed him, the same Holy Spirit that resurrected Jesus is available to come and fill you if you just repent. You see, that message, that's why it's the gospel. It's good news. They did not deserve this. And let me tell you who does not deserve this as well. You and I. Because as much as they sent Jesus to the cross, you and I sent Jesus to the cross with our sins. If it was just one of us who had sinned, Jesus Christ would have come and died for them. And see, that's what Peter is preaching. Yes, you're guilty of sin. But the good news is God wants to reconcile that sin. He wants to do away with it and reconcile with you. And this is absolute grace. And you and I have experienced it if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. We've received that forgiveness. We've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's all like Ephesians 1, 7 says, it's in Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, not by works of righteousness, which we have done as Titus three, five says, right. But according to his mercy, he saved us. It was through the, the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy spirit. Titus three, five tells us this. It wasn't because of something we did. This is love because he, he first loved us, right. That he sent his only son toward, to save us from our sins. It's not because we loved him first. This is grace. And that's why Peter's pinning this on them. He's hoping that they come to the understanding that they need forgiveness. They need to be saved. That Jesus Christ is that prince and savior at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the one in power and he's willing to forgive. And so now we're going to see the liberation. Look at 33 through 39. It says, 
When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it'll come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. <laughs> so in verse 33, we see that typical violent animosity of the religious leaders towards the gospel of Christ as they plot to kill the apostles. They want to put them to death. We've learned that this is their default, right? This is their default response when they're threatened. This is what they did to Jesus. And Peter just stood here preaching them, hey, you guys need to repent and you'll be forgiven and you'll receive the Holy Spirit, right? That's good news. All you have to do is acknowledge your sin. But instead, they try to sin more. In their pride and their hatred, they, they're, they're saying, no, we're going to silence your voice, Peter. Can I tell you, this is the same message that Jesus, I'm sorry, that Peter preached in Acts 2 to thousands of Jews. He said, you guys killed Jesus, but he's willing to forgive you. And they were, many responded, thousands responded to it and put their faith in Jesus Christ. The same gospel message. But at this point in time, these men will not receive it. Remember the parable of the sower and the soils. There's different soils, the hearts of men. Some receive the gospel, some do not. Sometimes the birds of the air of, of Satan come and pluck it away. Sometimes there's rock hard soil where it can't take root. Praise the Lord, there's sometimes good soil where it takes root. And that was like Acts 2. But here it's bouncing off that hard soil of hearts. And these men are saying, no, we're good the way we are. We don't need saving. Don't you dare pin this man's blood on us. We're not guilty of this, right? And the world still does the same today. We did this in our pride before we accepted the gospel, right? And so in verse 34, we see this Pharisee, though. He stands up. His name is Gamaliel. It says in verse 34 that he was held in respect by all of the people. And see, Jewish historians, they teach us that Gamaliel, that he was highly esteemed being revered even by the Sadducees. Remember, Sadducees and Pharisees, they didn't get along. Pharisees believed in the miraculous. They believed in a resurrection. They believed in, in the things of, of, of God and in afterlife. The Sadducees did not. And they never got along because of it. Only when they had a common enemy like Jesus, they would cooperate or like the apostles. But here, Gamaliel, he's highly regarded. So he puts out the apostles. He says, you guys go outside. That's the first sign that the apostles are kind of winning this thing, I feel like. Because <laughs> they're, they're like, man, we got to save face. Put these guys outside. And so they go outside to deliberate. And what happens here is he just gives these, these, these examples. He says, guys, let's consider two people in recent history that called themselves divine insurrectionists, it would seem. And he says, what happened to these people? What were the results? He cites two people in verse 36 and 37. The first is Thutis. He says, here's this guy that remember that guy, Thutis? He got 400 people to follow him. There's only, you know, you got these 12 apostles of Jesus, and then now you got these thousands of people following them. But remember what happened to Thutis? It wasn't a work of God, it was a work of man because when he died, everyone else scattered, right? 
he says, oh, and remember that other guy? There was another guy named Judas of Galilee, you know? And he, he got tons of people following. But when he was killed, his followers dispersed. So let me be clear. Gamaliel here is not saying that, hey, guys, you know, this might be something different. He's kind of saying, hey, why are we spending so much time on this? Look at if these guys are just like every like what we think they are, they're going to get killed. They'll die off and they'll go away. But he does say something very intriguing, right? He says, but if this is of God, you can't overthrow it. Lest you even be found to fight against God. In other words, Gamaliel was wise enough to understand that, man, we can't beat God. And these guys got miraculously released last night from jail. That was weird, right? What if this is God? We can't win. I don't think Gamaliel is trying to say that these guys are doing the work of God. Not by any means, but he's just saying, look it. If we don't get involved, these guys are going to die off anyways. If we get involved, we might be fighting against God. <laughs> now, remember, he's a Pharisee. The Sadducees are probably looking at him like, come on, fighting against God? What are you talking about, right? But the reality is he was wise enough to note this. But can I tell you what he was not wise enough to was to put his faith in Jesus Christ. He should have seen all these miracles. The fact that they did get freed the night before from prison. The fact that these men are walking around healing people in the streets. It should have been clear that there was something different about this. This wasn't Thutis. It wasn't Judas of Galilee. This is Jesus Christ, the name that these men won't even utter out loud because it's so powerful. And Gamaliel should have bowed his knee to Jesus Christ. But all he basically said was, hey, let's just leave him alone. And so it's wild. Look at the way that they get liberated. Look at the last three verses, 40 through 42. It says, and they agreed with Gamaliel. And when they had called to the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, as Messiah. So here's what's wild about this. Verse 40 says that the council, the Sanhedrin, they agreed with Gamaliel, right? The man that was regarded and respected and revered. And they said, all right, we won't kill the apostles. They did, however, beat the apostles. And we read that and we're like, oh, so they beat them up a little bit. Man, now these stubborn religious leaders, they couldn't just simply dismiss the apostles, right? They, they, they beat them. I mean, hard, right? In the Greek, it's a thrashing and it, it relates to flaying. It relates to removing skin. The idea is they whipped the apostles probably with 39 stripes. Each one of them got 39 stripes across the back, flesh exposed. They were beaten badly. They were flogged. And it was probably all because they said, well, you rejected our prior command not to teach and we let you go without beating you this time. We're going to beat you good. And next time you're yeah, they're going to beat them within an inch of their life. So that next time, maybe they think they're going to get killed for it. And so you would think, man, this is it. This must be the end, right? Verse 40. I mean, surely the, the apostles go home uh, absolutely just worn out and feeling, man, there's, there's just no way to, you know, overcome this. We're disheartened and we better just stop doing it. No, not at all. In verse 41, it says they left rejoicing. This is insane. This is only through the power of the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Can we be beaten for his testimony, beaten up by this world, physically, emotionally, just mentally, however you want to say this, and then leave and rejoice in that. See, they were absolutely ecstatic to have been rejected by men because of their commitment to Jesus. See, I'll take that every day. 
Now, if man just rejects me because I'm a jerk, that's not good. Man rejects me because I belong to Jesus and I'm loud about it because I'm a witness. I'm an ambassador. Praise the Lord for that. This meant that there was no question about to whom the apostles belonged to, to whom they were ambassadors. They were succeeding at being effective witnesses of Jesus. That was their heart's desire. That was their mission given them by Jesus through the power of the spirit. And see, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You will be blessed as you stand for the things of the Lord, even when you're rejected and persecuted for it. And then Peter himself later wrote in 1 Peter 4, 13, he said, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. What that means is as you endure the trials and persecution and tribulation of this world, just as Jesus promised in John 16, 33, you will overcome this world because your joy is in Jesus Christ and someday his glory will be revealed. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And in that time, when you are in heaven and eternity with the Lord, you will say, of course it was worth it. It was, it was all for joy's sake. We are going to have exceeding joy in the presence of the Lord. But now it's difficult. And the enemy, Satan himself, the world and our flesh, they try to fight to get us not to submit to this. But someday it's going to bring great joy. So do not give up. Keep fighting the good fight. And see, in verse 42, it says that they went out and talk about boldness. They didn't quit. Instead, they went and they taught and they preached in the name of Jesus daily in the temple and in people's houses. Anywhere they could preach about Jesus, they did it, man. And this should be us. You see, opposition it only further unites the church. It encourages us because we know that, man, they're doing this because we're witnesses of Jesus. I could detach my name to any other religious figure in the world and people will leave me alone. The minute I say I belong to Jesus and I'm doing this for Jesus Christ, it is weird for people because there's power in the name of Jesus. We are called to be a continuation of Acts, <laughs> to be believers. We are part of this same church. It's the beginning of the church in here. We're the continuation thereof. And we are called to be witnesses. Now it's our turn to the ends of the earth. Here I am in McKinney, Texas, pretty far away from Israel, <laughs> far away from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But I'm filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ because I put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, as my final sacrifice, my only sacrifice that could atone for sin. Read the book of Hebrews. He's the only sacrifice that can atone for sin. There's no other sacrifice. If you reject this one, there's none, none, none other that will come along. And if you've accepted it, don't trample it underfoot. Don't continue in sin. Repent. Walk in obedience. And as the Holy Spirit is filling you day by day, you will become a witness of Jesus Christ and testify to this world that Jesus is not just some man, some movement that fell apart. He is the Son of God. He's the Prince. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's the Prince of Peace, King of Kings. And man, there's no one else that I would choose to serve with all of my heart, with all of my life, with all of my breath. And I tell you, when you understand that, it changes everything. But if you reject that, it results in eternal separation from God the Father. And you don't want that. You should put your trust in Jesus Christ today. Amen. And if you have, keep at it. Keep walking with Jesus. Stay strong in a season where there's probably lots of, lots of opposition out there coming our way. Man, stay strong in him. Stay in the word. Stay in fellowship. Continue to grow. Let's pray. 
Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your love, Lord. And I just want to pray right now for anyone that's listening, watching live or later in the week that you would bless them, Lord, where they're at by giving them just a filling of your Holy Spirit as they trust in you. And Lord, for anyone that's been watching or listening that doesn't already know you, Lord, I pray that tonight would be the, the night, today would be the day of salvation, Lord. If you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do that by beginning with this prayer. You would say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.